Merritt Street, we're building a new morning show where our guiding principle is to always value your time. We'd love for you to join us. Be part of our community. Each morning will be packed full of news, information, advice, and a lot of fun. And we promise we'll never waste your time. I'm Dominique Soxa. I'm Fanchon Stinger. Join us for Morning on Merritt Street. 8 a.m. Eastern, 7 Central. Essential Television. Talk about human trafficking, because I think most people don't realize how common it is. I'm telling your folks right now, human trafficking is in your neighborhood. You say they're buying insurance policies. What do you mean? They will list an address that they control as where they now reside, and they will then bilk that policy and bill as much as they can for insurance purposes for treatments, some of which happen a lot of which don't. We've talked about so many things. This is just a public service gold mine. Last week on Fill in the Blanks, I was talking to Jennifer Lentz Snyder, head deputy for the Norwalk Branch Los Angeles County District Attorney's Office, and George Mueller, Deputy Commissioner for the California Department of Insurance Enforcement Branch. We were talking about fighting crime, and these are two of the top crime fighters in California. And of course, California is a national stage. If you can't find it here, you're not going to find it in the United States. So these two are players on the national stage as well as California. We talked about a lot of things last week. We talked about so many things from street crime to dismantling gangs to witness protection and challenging all of us in America to be proactive in the fight against crime. And then we turned our attention to fraud. And then we turned our attention to something that is really a problem, and that is human trafficking. People think human trafficking is some big exotic thing where you bring people in on a freighter and force them into prostitution, but it also includes people right in your own neighborhood, people coming from small towns into big cities looking to make it big, coming into Hollywood wanting to be movie stars, rock musicians, going to New York City wanting to make their big break in the Big Apple, etc., And what happens is they get hijacked by pimps, not always into prostitution, sometimes into slave labor. What happens is they get their hooks in them, start working them for as little as 30 cents an hour and threatening to murder their families if they don't comply. And there's a whole other chapter to this, and that's trafficking in the rehab world, getting addicts into rehab and sober living and re-addicting them and trafficking them from one facility to another. It's exploiting people at their absolute most vulnerable, and it is ugly. 
Well, Jennifer Lentz Snyder and George Mueller are on the case, and they're talking about it. I saved it from last week's conversation because I didn't want to hurry it, and I wanted to do a drill down so you could understand what's really going on. So we're picking up last week's conversation in progress because I fear that as we come out of quarantine and start cranking back up this country, there's going to be a big pent-up appetite in the need for services for people at their most vulnerable. So here we go again with Jennifer Lentz Snyder, Head Deputy of the Norwalk Branch of the Los Angeles County District Attorney's Office, and George Mueller, Deputy Commissioner for the California Department of Insurance Enforcement Branch. Let me change the subject a little bit and ask you guys to talk about this. I think it was Jennifer mentioned human trafficking. You know, people think about human trafficking as some exotic sort of thing where you've got a tanker or some ship full of people out of a foreign country or whatever. But I don't live very far from Sunset and I can go five minutes from my house and there's human trafficking going on on Sunset in restaurants here where people that have come to Hollywood hoping to break in and become movie stars and musicians and all are being forced into prostitution and labor and other sorts of things. Talk about human trafficking and then we'll talk about it in terms of rehab and sober living and things of that nature. But talk about human trafficking because I think most people don't realize how common it is and how non-exotic it is. It's a lot more than what people think. You're, you're right, Dr. Phil. I, I can start on that. So most people, as you said, think it's human, human trafficking is an international thing. We're bringing people to this country for labor or in, in those countries. I'm telling your folks right now, human trafficking is in your neighborhood. It is right down the street, as you said, Dr. Phil, on Sunset Boulevard, Santa Monica, wherever you live, human trafficking is in your neighborhood. And what's ended up happening is the sad thing is, is that these gangs are now targeting high school kids, kids that are very quiet, kids that are very shy, kids that don't have a belonging somewhere. And all of a sudden they start to talk to them. Next thing you know, let me take you down to the local coffee shop. Let me buy you this. Let me buy you a dress. And before you know it, they built this trust that, oh, this is my new friend. And then the next thing you know, they've taken you now to a safe house somewhere, a place undisclosed, where now they tell you, if you don't do this and you don't go into prostitution and make me money, I'm going to kill your family. And the sad thing is there are over probably 300,000 kids in just the United States alone that are into human trafficking. And people here aren't really educated on that and see that. It's, get, it's getting a lot better, and we've done a great job in educating people on human trafficking and what to look for, but it is in your backyard, it is in your neighborhood, and you need to be very vigilant about it. And if you see something like that, if you see what we call the pimp, or if you see somebody where they're out with somebody and they're not talking much, you can look for, for bruises. These people beat these people as well. These people they're taking advantage of because they're putting fear into their life. And the biggest fear is that they're also going to go ahead and kill their family. So that's the threat. Go ahead, Jennifer. Yeah, but that is the threat, Dr. Phil. It's it's the threat. It's the same 
It's the same currency. It's the power over somebody. And it can be in, in a sex trade kind of environment. That happens a lot. We're pretty familiar with that. But it can also happen in a more traditional labor setting where we have seen cases in the insurance industry where groups of people from foreign countries come over. They are recruited by the same by a collective group of restaurant owners, and they are told that they're going to be provided housing, they're going to be provided benefits, they're going to be provided all kinds of things. And what you find out is these people are working for about 30 cents an hour because they have been lied to and they've been brought over here simply to staff these places, run these places so that the employers don't have to pay them a fair wage, don't have to pay into any of the employment programs, don't have to pay taxes on it because they put the fear of God in these people and they keep their passports so they can't get out. So you bring dozens and dozens of people from the same region over and you have them uh, living in these really squalid conditions and working hours that are absolutely mind-blowing and it goes on all over the place. I know one of my colleagues up north, Bill Murphy, who's a fabulous prosecutor up in Contra Costa County, um, he prosecuted a couple of these cases where this all started simply because the owners of these businesses didn't want to pay workers' comp and they wanted cheaper labor. And it's amazing to me how this devolves. And I think it devolves not only because they're greedy, but because they have this sense of entitlement, the sense that, well, I have a right to succeed and it doesn't matter what I have to do to get there. And they don't see themselves as the pimps that they really are. It's really important for people to keep their eyes open and see what's going on because if something seems strange, it probably is. And the kinds of information that break open those cases are not these dramatic ex escapes from these safe houses. It's usually somebody taking a moment to talk to one of these people who share a little bit of information that sets their antenna off that say, danger, danger, something wrong is going on here. So people just need to be willing to get involved and be willing to listen and then be willing to report what they hear because it really is up to everybody to take that kind of responsibility and not let these people get victimized. This is so fascinating and helpful. Let me tell you something about Dr. Phil viewers and listeners. 90% of the people that watch daytime television don't watch Dr. Phil. And 90% of the people that watch Dr. Phil don't watch anything else in daytime. I don't know why that is. I just have a different audience. And I'm so proud of the people that do follow me on Fill in the Blanks and Dr. Phil on the Air and our crime podcast. The people that I have connected with over the last 18 years are people that are responsible, they're caring, they're committed, they're devoted. They're like an army of action agents. It's why I said at the beginning that I was so very excited about having the privilege of talking to the two of you. This is important information that can make such a difference here. And so I want to get down in the weeds on this because I said that People think about this like they see on movies like Miami Vice or something, and they think sometimes this is purely for prostitution and sex, and it certainly is that, but it's also domestics, waiters, busboys, all different types of unskilled labor. 
these people are forced into this situation. Passports are taken. They have no way out. Often English is a second language. They don't know the system. Sometimes it's small town people that have come to the big city within the United States, and they're caught up in this. And the threat is, first off, you owe us money. We paid this for you. We're giving you free rent. We're paying you money. We're giving you food. You took this from us. Now you owe us, and you pay us, or we're going to go kill your sister, kill your family, or do this. Now, obviously, so there's a threat. There's a fear motivation there. And what I'm wanting people to know, and George, you said it's in your neighborhood. This isn't something you see on television. This isn't happening in New York, Miami, L.A. This is happening everywhere. And there's a damn good chance if you're in a restaurant or somewhere under normal circumstances, I know they're closed right now, but somebody in that restaurant that's either bussing your table, waiting on you, in the kitchen out back, there's a good chance somebody in that support staff is in the situation we're talking about, correct? I mean, that's what we're saying. Yeah, depending on where you are and what part of the community. I mean, I think your 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 well-known restaurants, Dr. Phil, that people go to, you're not going to see that. But I think in these smaller restaurants and cultural communities, that is definitely going on. I, I can tell you, Dr. Phil, when I was at the DA's office, I had a captain that worked for me, and they had a friend whose daughter was a straight A student, very quiet, probably would have been the valedictorian of her class. And all of a sudden, she befriended an individual, started talking to this individual. He took her out, bought her things, bought her clothes, did this and that. And before they knew it, she left the house. Parents did not know where she was. And she was put into this slavery, into this human trafficking. And thank God these parents cared and contacted our DA's office. We then started investigating and were able to actually recover her after, of course, they had provided her drugs because that's the other thing they do in this business. They provide them drugs, they get them drugged up. So they basically take away the the human factor and basically make them a piece of meat. And so to to your point, I'm sorry, I had to tell that story, Dr. Bill, because we were able to save a human life and now this person's gone on to college and is being a, a very successful person in society. But you're right, these restaurants where it's going on and the fear and the, the medium, but like I said, Dr. Phil, they're paying back what they said apparently that they've done. And there, there's a lady out of Canada by the name of Tamia Nagy, who I met. Her parents were in law enforcement. She was promised to come out here as a nanny to work for a family. When she arrived, the people who picked her up at the airport took her to a safe house and literally started to drug her immediately it's unbelievable that people have so little conscience that they would do that sort of thing. Now, Jennifer, you were saying you've got to watch, and let's say you're in one of these restaurants, and as you're saying, George, we're not talking about every restaurant, but let's say you're in one of these fringe restaurants in a part of the city and in a city where this can go on, and you spot something. Jennifer, What should people look for? What kind of question can they ask? What are the red flags? And if they see something, what do they do? Who do they call? What do they say? How do they respond in a way that doesn't get this person seriously in danger, but does get them help? Look, there are 
so many public agencies that are there to help people in the labor market, whether it's a busboy or a server or a cook, the opportunity is not always going to be there. And I'm not encouraging people to conduct inquisitions every time you go in and when we get the the opportunity to go back and, and dine in in restaurants. But if you see a set of circumstances at a place that say you're a frequent customer and there seems to be something strange, very often you can engage servers in discussions and you can tell them, you know, there's people who can help you with that. You can find phone numbers for them. You could find, for instance, the Department of Labor Standards. They have a, a number of investigators that do nothing more than go out and make sure that people's rights as workers are being protected. There are plenty of advocacy groups out there as well. Where the disconnect is, is that the people who are being exploited don't know about those resources and they're unlikely to know about them. But the general public, especially as informed an audience as you have, Dr. Phil, could find those phone numbers, could find those contacts for those people. And it's not going to be something you're going to do every day. But it's one of those things that when you see it and something seems odd, you can go do the research and find the phone number, find the 800 number, find this, the California State Fraud Enforcement number. Call George. Call the local prosecutor's office. Some Send us an email. We get thousands of emails every day about a wide variety of things. And part of what we do uh, is the district attorney, Jackie Lacey, has a group of staff members who do nothing but try to place those complaints and those concerns with people who can do something about them. So you don't have to get the right number and get the right key to get in the right door. If you contact any one of the fraud referrals Almost every time, they're going to take the time to find out who that complaint goes to, who that concern goes to, because we interact all the time. And ultimately, what we're all about is trying to protect the public. So I, I don't want to suggest that there's a laundry list of phone numbers that you should keep in your wallet or in your purse so that you can provide those numbers. But you can call your local prosecutor's office or your local police department and explain what you saw, and somebody will take action. It may not be immediate, but it will happen. Because what you've said, Dr. Phil, is absolutely true. An awful lot of what we do goes on outside of you, behind the curtain. It's not that we're not doing stuff. It just isn't necessarily visible to the general public. Yeah, Listen, I've talked to so many people here in L.A., in Dallas, in New York, where I spend a lot of time in those three cities in particular, where I've talked to law enforcement that have said, you know, I've got a phone call from somebody that goes in this restaurant that said, there's a young man that works down there and I've seen bruises on the back of his neck or around his wrist. And I just want somebody to just go down there and check. And they said they went down there and assembled the staff in the kitchen and said, if anybody here wants to leave with me right now, just stand up and leave with me right now. And they left phone numbers, they posted them on the wall, they did this, they did that. And sure enough, you know, three or four people within the next week or 10 days, they got contacted. And it's amazing how if they had never done that, this might have gone on indefinitely. But one visit, and in the next week or 10 days, three or four people reached out and said, I'm trapped, I need help. And what could have happened if they hadn't done that? It just saved lives. 
by one person making a phone call and saying, I got a real uneasy feeling about this young kid down here. And a phone call was made, and it took a week or 10 days, but somebody got down there, they posted some numbers, they made a statement, and sure enough, three or four people emerged within a week or 10 days, and it made a difference. So just don't think that it doesn't matter if you reach out. People do respond. That's what their job is, and they do it. So I just, I'm so glad we're talking about that because I know for the three of us talking right now, there are hundreds of people within a 15-minute radius of us right now that are caught in this situation. And if people will respond, then they're findable and there are resources to help them. So I'm glad we're having this conversation. Let me change the subject for a minute. We're not far from what is referred to as the Rehab Riviera. There's a part of LA where there are a lot of rehab facilities here for drug and alcohol. Some of them are five-star, A-plus quality organizations. Some of them are not. And when people go into rehab, there are phases. There's rehab, which is the initial treatment. Then when they get through with rehab, there are other kind of halfway steps. There are halfway houses. There are sober living houses. There are different kinds of things. And like most industries, these are given to abuse when you're dealing with a vulnerable population. And there has been a lot of fraud going on in this industry as well. And y'all have had to deal with some of that. George, can you talk about that a little bit? Yeah, I mean, and, and Jen can talk about what we've been working together. So we work very closely with all our district attorney partners. And when you're talking about these sober living homes, I mean, Orange County is kind of kind of the, uh, the benchmark that they've set across the country is one of the highest areas that People have joked about that there are more sober living homes in Orange County than there are Starbucks, which is kind of hard to believe. And what we really started to find is the brokering of patients. The fraud that is going on with these sober living homes right now is disgusting, Dr. Phil. You know, these, these places are buying insurance policies for people across the country. They are flying them out here to promise them, you know, this great rehab and to bring their life back. And they get them into these rehabs. And it starts off well, and next thing you know is just as the insurance policy is beginning to run out and they don't have the coverage anymore, what they do is they'll go ahead and supply them narcotics again or whatever their addiction is to, and they'll then kick them out on the street and then try to restart that whole insurance policy again and bring them back into the fold, or they'll send them to another facility, which believe it or not is probably one of their facilities as well. A lot of times they have these shell companies where they have multiple different types of names, and the minute law enforcement starts to pick up on them, guess what they do? They change their name. They move to a different location. And they're in our, our neighborhoods as well. You will hear neighbors complain all the time. Well, there is a sober living house right next door to me with all these people. And a lot of the communities or these local cities don't have any ordinance to prevent that. But right now, sober living homes is one of the biggest scams going on across this country. Um, in Florida is probably one of the biggest. And then you bring it out to California. You and I have talked in the past. Insurance fraud either starts in Florida or it starts in California. They learn it from the other side of the coast, and then it goes there as well. Um, but it is one of the biggest industries out there. And, you know, Jen can talk a little bit about the case. She sees we didn't do an investigation with our partners with the FBI and places like that. But Jen gets them from all different types of law enforcement agencies when they come across her table. And she could probably address a little bit of that as well. 
You say they're buying insurance policies. What do you mean? So let's assume, Dr. Phil, that you have an addicted child, okay, and you are at wit's end about your addicted child. And you look on, you see a beautiful ad on late night TV about a place you're going to put you where they're going to handle everything. And when you go there and you're at your lowest ebb and your child, adult children very often are at their lowest ebb, they come in and they say, they assess you and they say, look, this will cost you $2,000 out of pocket, but we will get the rest of it from insurance. And so they will take your kid's information. They will notify the insurer that the kid moved, which is now a qualifying event. They will list an address that they control as where they now reside. And they will then bilk that policy and bill as much as they can for insurance purposes for treatments, some of which happen, a lot of which don't. And then when they run out on that policy, they'll buy a new policy from a different company and they will exhaust that policy's benefits. And it goes on and on. Sometimes, as George said, they will bring some drugs into the facility so they get your kid re-addicted. So now your kid feels powerless because they did the very thing that everybody said they shouldn't do. This goes on over and over and over because there is a pot of money in insurance policies for addiction treatment. It is a burgeoning industry that has only partial regulation. For instance, sober living houses are not regulated by the state of California. Rehabilitation facilities are. And while that might seem to be somewhat in the weeds, it is those kinds of distinctions that the fraudsters exploit to their own benefit. And you will see people for whom more than two or three million dollars has been billed for rehabilitation services, and that person is still under rehab. They are still a client of the rehab facility. I don't want to damn the entire industry because there's a lot of really good companies out there that really do put the client's interest first. But where you have to be watching this is when your loved one's personal information gets taken, it makes them vulnerable and they can get exploited. All of the mail pertaining to those policies that got purchased gets sent to the address that the rehab center has provided. We found in several cases it was a post office box. Remarkably, 400 people permanently relocated to a post office box. But nobody would find that out until you finally figured out that your kid had been in the rehab for 120 days and is still testing dirty. They also do things like they buy their own testing facilities. So now your loved one is testing five days a week, even though medically that's completely unnecessary. Why are they doing that? So that they can bill the insurance company for five tests. And when they do that, instead of billing for one packet of tests, they bill each one individually. So they do what we call unbundling. So they bill for $2,500 for a urinalysis on a daily basis, as opposed to one $200 urinalysis. It's crazy creative the way that this billing goes on. And what's most despicable about it is that the people that are finally going to seek treatment have hit rock bottom and they are incredibly vulnerable. That's what makes my blood boil, that these are families and people who are at their lowest ebb and these money-making people are more concerned about the dollars they can extract than the well-being of the people that they are recruiting.
And are they trafficking these patients between different facilities? Sure, they'll ping pong them. They'll they'll basically send them. They'll offer the patient five hundred bucks to go to a different facility, and then that other facility will issue billing. And they all know that the billing goes through a computerized system, and they figured out what the algorithms are, so they can escape detection. It's a fascinating and intricate business. But what it really boils down to is somebody's lying to get something that they're not entitled to. The bad guys just believe that we won't have the patience or the perseverance to keep at it until we figure out how they did it. And they're able to get away with millions and millions and millions of dollars in fraudulent billing before they finally get caught. And then when they get caught, they figure, what's the worst thing that happens? If I have lived a high life and spent all that money, I don't even have to pay the money back because it's just fraud. And that's the fallacy that George and I have been fighting for a number of years. It's not just fraud. It's a whole lot worse than that. It's really about destroying people's trust. Because I work with this population a lot, and we try to do everything we can to vet these facilities, which is no easy task, let me tell you, because the state licenses these facilities based on what information they have at the time, and it's ever-changing and evolving. So they're chasing the information at all times. But when you do this, you're dealing with a very vulnerable population, and people wind up losing their lives. Are there criminal consequences for these people if they play this rotation game and somebody winds up overdosing and dying? Are these people criminally liable for manslaughter or whatever if somebody dies in this shell game they're playing? It's a difficult question. Uh, Here's what we have found. It is almost impossible to prove cause of death for an addict to be the result of somebody else's, of another human being's intentional act. So when somebody is a drug addict, their cause of death is overdose. Unless we can provide evidence or we find evidence beyond a reasonable doubt to prove that somebody else caused that death by giving them a huge bolus of whatever their drug of choice is, or by getting them, uh, putting them in a situation where they were particularly endangered. That becomes very difficult to prove beyond a reasonable doubt. That's one of our greatest frustrations. At one of these clinics, I know of eight people who overdosed, most of whom had broken away from the facilitators, the, the lead facilitator. They were saying, I want out of this, I'm gonna, I'm gonna blow the whistle. And those investigations are ongoing because we have such difficulty proving that their death was caused by the intentional act of another human being that was likely to cause death. It is a real sticky wicket, and it is a real frustration in pursuing these cases. And so we try to close down those facilities that we can where this has been happening even though that's not much sense of justice for those families who may have lost a loved one. It's difficult to prove the cause of death was another human being's malfeasance. What do we say to families, and not about after it's happened, but what do we say to families that are looking for legitimate care? Because sober living, in my professional opinion, is a legitimate 
step in the process of getting yourself back into a fully functioning role in society. I think rehab is a legitimate treatment modality. Going to sober living where you're with like-minded people that are supporting your sobriety and helping you with a job and helping you do the things you need to start stair-stepping yourself back to independent sober living on your own. That is a supportive environment. Done properly, it is a legitimate therapeutic modality. What do we say to people? How do they guard against getting caught up in this shell game of fraudulent operators? Because I know there are some good operators out there. I think you have to stay proactive. You have to beware if the operators are isolating your loved one. You have to go out and actually walk through the facility. Um, Part of one of our prosecutions involved an investigator from one of the insurance companies who posed as the mother of an addict, and she actually went in the facility. And Dr. Phil, given your familiarity with this, I'm sure you will be as outraged as she was. When she asked them where their detox room was, they showed her a living room with a couple of chairs and said, we just let them detox here. And she said, well, what do you do about medical care? She said, well, only when it's needed. Okay, for some who are uninformed, that might seem okay, but that's not what detox is supposed to be. So I would say stay proactive, stay vigilant, beware if somebody is isolating your loved one from you, and go in and walk through the place yourself. Ask questions. Find out from other people. Don't believe the ads that are on TV. It may look real pretty, but find out if they're really doing the hard work. I suspect that all of us know people who have gotten through their addiction. It is a tough road to hoe. So I would encourage people who are in that environment to look very closely at the details. Find out if they're going to have the insurance if they're going to share, for instance, the explanation of benefits. You know, sometimes we get those explanation of benefit forms from the insurance company, and I don't know about you, but I know the only line that I read regularly is, it's your responsibility to pay. And you don't necessarily look down the itemized items that are being billed on your behalf. I think people have to be a little bit more proactive as consumers and make sure that their loved one, or if it's them, that they're getting the services that they're supposed to get. And if you see isolation of people, if you see um, if you see something that doesn't strike you as being accurate, check other check their peer businesses because I've found that the rehabilitation facilities that are legitimate really work hard to protect the legitimate providers. And they're getting brought down by the cheaters. So I would say be proactive, don't relinquish control of billing and personal information, and be vigilant. The first page of a book never tells the full story. And those news alerts and headlines, like the ones we get on our phones, don't even scratch the surface of what the story is really all about. Stories are like people, multi-layered and complex. It takes some digging to find the truth, but when we find it, it can change our world. We like to dig. The news on Merritt Street, essential television. 
on Oops! The Podcast. Join me, comedian Julio Gallerati, as I examine everyday life, the mistakes, the bad decisions, the goals, the jokes, the social engagements, and all things in between. I'm joined every week by producer and personal confidant, Ryan Lynch, various other comedians for witty, candid, and intoxicating conversation. Our listeners love Oops! for sophisticated banter, aka your mom could listen, and many feel like they're in the room with us chopping it up with old pals. You can find every episode of the show on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or YouTube. There are some watchdog groups out there. I know um, Wendy McIntyre, who is founder of an organization, Jared'sLaw.org. I don't know if you all have encountered Wendy, but uh, she founded this organization in 2005 after the loss of her son, Jared, uh, at a rogue uh, sober living home, and she started this 501c. It's a nonprofit organization, and they really work as a protector looking into these bogus, illegal, sober living facilities and really audits these things and does what you're saying, sends people inside and looks at them. And so in, in your area, she works in California, but there are advocates, I'm sure, in a lot of states that have done a lot of the homework for you. So you've just got to get on the internet, do your homework, make visits, call, find out what's going on. And if they're transferring your family member around, that's a real big red flag. And people that are guaranteeing you cures and things like that, that's just not the medical model. Addiction is a medical disease. It is highly resistant to treatment. It is subject to relapse, and it it takes a whole lot of work. And anything that they're doing that is not fully transparent should just set off all kinds of red flags with you. It's just a it's a it's a serious problem. And George, why Orange County? Why do you think it's concentrated in Orange County? And are these sober livings regulated uh, under state law, or do they operate outside the regulations of the of the rehabs themselves? Yeah, they're unfortunately they are operating outside those regulations. And I think Orange County, it's like when you look at the advertisement and you see Orange County, you see the beach. You know, you see the beautiful sunsets. People see that. Well, if I'm going to go to rehab, I want to go to a place where I'm also going to be able to have those amenities and live that type of lifestyle. And Orange County just offers that, Dr. Phil. So unfortunately, it is under, they're not being regulated for that. You know, a little bit, and, and Jennifer talked about it as well. What happens a lot in these sober living, too, is they do kind of strip their identity as well. And if they're not being transparent, you have to do your research. And you touched on that. We have done investigations, and I've heard it from people that I've talked to in that industry, is that they will then take an individual, and predominantly in this case females, and they'll take them out. Let's go out on a boat ride today just to get you away from this place and get you some fresh air. And this particular case, this person took this female out, out on this boat out in the marina, Marina del Rey, here in California, and provides her drugs, and the next thing what happens, sexually assault and rape. And we hear that a lot in these in these bad um, sober living rooms. There are a lot, as, as Jennifer said, there are a lot of great facilities out there that are really changing people's lives and getting them back on the straight and narrow so they can be successful and stay away from their addiction. 
but you have these bad people that are really taking advantage of these people in these sober living homes and again providing them drugs and taking abuse uh, and abusing them sexually and by raping them and so unfortunately we have seen that come across our table and it does break our heart because one they are fighting this addiction they're at the lowest point in their life as jennifer said and now you've taken them to a whole nother place and I've heard recently of one story where this female tried to commit suicide because of the trauma she had been put through. You know, Dr. Phil, one of the things that this points out is the human toll of these crimes is much greater than the dollar value. How do you put a person's life back together after they've gone to somebody for help and they got exploited? And, and that is why these things are crimes. It's not just about the dollars. We get really caught up in talking about, oh, it's this many millions or that many millions. And, and while that's a factor, it's a, me, it's a metric. The real challenge in these cases is the human toll. How do you restore those people? How do you restore faith in an industry that has been exploited by these bad actors? You know, how do you hit that balance between being vigilant and being paranoid? And, and that's the danger. In California, sober living homes weren't regulated and aren't regulated because it's supposed to be basically a safe living place. It isn't supposed to involve anything really medical. But because it's not regulated, the bad actors have exploited it and create these sort of one stops so that they use sober living facilities actually as unlicensed drug rehabs. And that's part of how this exploitation occurs. So again, from my point of view, the most proactive thing I would do if I had a loved one that needed to go into rehab is I'd ask hard questions, I'd walk through it, I'd wanna to talk to other addicts' families to find out what their point of view was. Not just the people whose names are there at the recruitment, but other people. And I would ask the questions when my loved one was being moved from one facility to a next. Because real rehab, is medical and people are getting taken advantage of for things that are not medically necessary or even medically appropriate simply for the money. I think this is so relevant because one of the things that I've observed is during this quarantine, a lot of people have foregone treatment, seeking treatment for all different types of things. Research shows that a quarter of active cancer patients have delayed or foregone uh, treatment that were already actively involved in chemotherapy or whatever. Ambulatory diagnosis and treatment for all types of scans and screenings have, have gone down versus a year ago. And we know that we have a tremendous opioid epidemic in America. And I think as this quarantine lifts, there is going to be a tremendous pent-up appetite of people that are seeking help, care, treatment. And so as, as people come out of this and are saying, wow, I, you know, I've been living with this. I've got to do something about this. I need help. I think there's going to be this pent-up appetite where there's going to be a real surge of people looking for help and care and treatment. And I just want people to be mindful about it as they go about this and not get caught up by this blind urgency 
for getting help and treatment, they need to be mindful of it and not fall victim to these fraudulent schemes and wind up worse off than they were going into it. Even though you're urgently in need of care, be mindful of how you go about it. You wind up worse than you were before you started. If you're not careful about where you go, think, check references, do peer reviews, all the things that we've been discussing so you don't get victimized by these bad actors. I just hope people keep that in mind. Well, guys, I have kept you much longer than you agreed to talk to me, but I, and I could talk to you for another hour without even scratching the surface, but I think we've talked about such very important things in raising awareness about the important work that's going on behind the scenes by law enforcement, the fraud that is going on uh, across uh, California and across the United States, uh, white collar, insurance, COVID, human trafficking, drug and alcohol rehabilitation, sober living, internet. We've talked about so many things. This is just a public service goldmine, what you have brought to this conversation today. This is absolutely the highest and best use of fill in the blanks since I've started this. I cannot thank you enough. Jennifer, is there anything that we haven't talked about that when you have the opportunity to to speak that you you like to leave on people's minds, is there anything that you would like to address before we uh, wrap this up? Just the same message over and over, Dr. Phil, and it's one that your viewers have um, adopted from your leadership, and that is be the solution. Don't be afraid. One step makes a difference. I, benign neglect is not a solution. It just lets stuff fester. So I'm very grateful for the opportunity. I know that our district attorney works a lot behind the scenes and has for many years with good people like George and people throughout this state. We're really here to try to help people feel secure, not just about punishing bad guys, but making sure that people have what they need and that they can get the help that they need when they need it. I'm very grateful to have been included in this conversation. Thank you. Well, I, I thank you for all of your insight to this, and it's just it's it's just meant everything. I I just I cannot even begin to tell you what I think we've brought to the table. It's it's just been great, and I hope you keep playing that harp. You certainly have a a varied background. <laughs> I had indulgent parents, Doctor Phil. Yes, you you did. Uh, George, I want to thank you as well. Is there anything that we haven't touched on that you think is uh, important for us to touch on? No, I want to thank you as well, Dr. Phil, for having Jennifer and I. You know, I've been very fortunate to work in this profession I've had for a long time and to work with people with Jennifer. You know, we, we do work behind the curtain and I want people to know that there are people out there who really do care about them. As you know, in my department here, we do a lot of outreach to really educate the consumers on the frauds to look out for. And the DA's offices do that as well. And there's a partnership. And our goal is really to educate people not to be taken advantage of. And if they are, I want them to know that we are here to protect them, to go after these bad actors and hopefully put them behind behind bars where they belong. And so we are here to help Dr. Phil. And as Jennifer said, your viewers, you know, believe in you and what you bring to the table. And that's why we're here today as well, because we want to be able to help them out. So I appreciate what you also do, Dr. Phil, and your support for the law enforcement community and what you've done for all of us. And I can't thank you enough. So thank you for having us on today. 
been my honor to do so and I really am proud to support uh, law enforcement. I was really looking forward to this and you guys certainly did not disappoint in any stretch of the imagination. As I say, I think we've talked about some very, very important things here and I really hope people hear the message about getting involved and staying involved and we really can make a difference. We've really got to be proactive in everything that we do. And I was honored recently by the LAPD with the Twice a Citizen Award, which has to do with those that are active in supporting law enforcement. And it's one of the greatest honors I've received. And I want to live up to that that year, this year, and every year in, in supporting law enforcement, not just in L.A., but across the country. And I want to continue to do that. And I hope we can have conversations like this going forward. I bet you we're going to have a huge response to this and a lot of questions. And maybe we'll do a follow-up on this sometime in the future. So, Jennifer, George, thank you both so much for participating in this. And, uh, be well during this quarantine and as we come out of it i'm sure you guys are going to have lots and lots to do so again thank you very much and we'll talk soon thank you dr phil thank you